At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. Today we have a special guest, Dr. Westhead from Harvard University, to speak about his newest book, The Cold War, A World History. As always, I want to thank our Patreon supporters and our one-time contributors for making this interview possible. Dr. Westhead is one of the leading figures in Cold War thought and research, and in full disclosure, I'm a huge fan of his work. His writing deeply influenced my studies as a graduate student and have a deep influence in the shaping of this podcast. So, Dr. Westhead, it's a great honor for us to have you on the show. If you wouldn't mind, if you could share a little about yourself and what first interested you in the topic of the Cold War. Right. So, I grew up in, in Norway during the 1960s when the Cold War was a very important issue locally and, and, and to the world. And though Norway is a relatively peaceful place, it still borders the uh, what was then the Soviet Union in the north. And there was this sense of tension that came out of the Cold War division of the world, even in a peaceful place as, as Norway. So I think in, in growing up, I sort of wondered how best to understand these global divides and what drove them. And then uh, later on, after college, I started working for different kinds of um, refugee relief organizations and development aid organizations, mainly in Africa and South Asia. And that furthered my interest. That's probably what pointed me most in the direction of approaching this as an historian, because I became really, really interested in trying to figure out, so, you know, why had a international system come into being that privileged some over others to the extent that we saw during the Cold War that moved power away from newly independent states in, in Africa and Asia and, and much towards, first and foremost, the global superpowers, but then also towards the global north. So that's, I think, what got me started on this, what, what really got me interested in thinking about the Cold War in a broad sense. About 20% of our audience is in Scandinavia. Would you happen to have any recommendations for our audience around books about the Cold War in Scandinavia? So Scandinavia, or the whole Nordic area, is really interesting in, in Cold War terms because it was such a mix of different historical backgrounds and orientations. And, you know, you had Norway and, and Denmark who became members of, of NATO and quite closely aligned with the United States. And Sweden and Finland who were non-aligned but in slightly different directions. Sweden probably more on the leaning towards the western side and Finland, for historical reasons, having to deal with a much more in-between kind of position between the Soviet Union and, and the West, both Western Europe and, and the United States. There's a great deal of research that's been undertaken on this. I mean, frankly, not so much recently, I think, is going back a decade 
or two. I first got interested in the academic side of this through one of my um, teachers, my main mentor at the University of Oslo, Helge Faro, who is one of the great um, Cold War historians in, in Scandinavia. But there are a number of people uh, in all four main Nordic countries who have taken an interest in this. There is a great literature if people are willing to look it up. Sure, sure. And do you have any of those recommended, I guess, one or two books that they might want to look I at? I think uh, what's come out of late is um, probably, it depends on which language they would be able to read it in, but in Scandinavian languages, meaning in Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish, there, are, there is quite a considerable uh, literature dealing with issues. I'm, I'm not going to recommend any particular books because people can read okay. themselves, but dealing with issues such as as uh, NATO integration or, or non-alignment, there is a interest, I think, now in trying to figure out more what existed of sort of Nordic Scandinavian cohesion during the Cold War beyond what the international system seemed to dictate. So I think you know some of some of those things would be quite quite interesting for people who who uh, find this part fascinating to. To look at, and, and there have been some there have been some advances that have been made on that as well. So, in reading your book, unlike most histories of the Cold War, which start in 1945 or 1947, your narrative of the Cold War begins in 1890 and the close of the 19th century. Why this change in dates versus much of the traditional Cold War historiography? I think it's important to understand what this conflict came out of. I mean, I, I said earlier on that that's one of the things that really got me interested in this is to figure out. You know, how did this become for two, almost three generations, the predominant international system? And I think in order to do that, you have to look at the early part of the 20th century and back to the 1890s for two main reasons. So one is that this is when um, a lot of changes globally took place that seem to point in the direction of a kind of global conflict, not necessarily in specific detail of the sort that the Cold War became as an international system, but heading in that direction. So in the 1890s, we had the first global market crisis. So the first time that capitalism seemed to deliver crisis and, and decline. And I think that contributed to a sense, maybe particularly in, in Europe, but also to some extent in North America, that uh, the um, labor movement, both politically and in terms of trade unions, had to press more radical claims in order to get, get ahead with the kind of issues that they wanted to focus on. So a radicalization that came out of this global crisis. And then certainly the 1890s is the time in which um, both the United States and Russia expand and really become transcontinental empires uh, with an enormous international influence. So all of this uh, it's not enough to understand the Cold War, but it sort of predicates the Cold War. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is, of course, the generational aspect. So, so many of the leaders who came to head up uh, most countries during the uh, post-1945 era, when the Cold War really settled from being an ideological conflict to becoming an international system of states, they grew up around that time. So this is their own personal background. And I think that's really important because people are often very much influenced in their thinking and their actions by the era they grew up in. And if you were born in the 1890s, you know, my, my granddad was born in 1893, that was not a particularly good time to grow up. I mean, almost 
wherever you were. So two world wars, global depression. And coming out of that, thinking that the stakes are really very high, it's not, maybe when you look at it, not that difficult to understand. One of the parts of the book I felt was very interesting was your insight around the generation of leaders of the early Cold War uh, that were shaped by the First World War. Uh, the quote from your book, quote, all the elements of the Great War were in the Cold War. Fear, uncertainty, the need for something to believe in, and the demand to create a better world, close quote. I think many seem to focus on the influence of the Second World War, um, and we actually miss the influence of the First on the Cold War. Absolutely. No, I think that's very true. I think very often to understand history, particularly history of this kind, you have to have a personal angle to it in terms of the individuals who are involved to understand the choices that they make. So I think that's a good way of getting into my overall interpretation of what I'm doing here is that there are structural elements among them, the ones I just referenced, that point in the direction of a U.S.-Soviet confrontation in the 20th century. But in order to get there, you had to go through the minds of a lot of people who had come to believe, for some very good reasons, as you just said, that one had to move away from these disasters that had befallen the world in the early 20th century. That, and that in order to do that, one had to institute on a global scale a system that one actually believed in and believed very strongly in. So that's where ideology, in a way, comes to become predominant, that the ideas are put before the sort of immediate issues of strategic interest or, or overarching you know, global competition. So and that's a strong reminder, uh, I think, for our own day as well, in terms of you know, how, how important it is to think about where your ideas will actually take you. Right? So in terms of uh, the warnings from the Cold War, that people can act out of motives that would be seen generally as good, um, but could still end up in a place that is quite destructive. For fans of your earlier work, how is this book different from some of your other works, such as The Global Cold War or The Cambridge History of the Cold War, which you helped to edit? Mm. So I think if you compare it to Global Cold War, the, the, the big difference, I think, is that this book, the new book, uh, the Cold War of World History, is an attempt to look uh, at the broader uh, chronological dimension of the Cold War, but also to expand the geographic scope. So the Global Cold War dealt, as the subtitle says, with intervention uh, of different kinds in, in the Third World Project. So uh, it is a, it, that book, I think, is best understood as a, as a long, some would say overlong essay, in, in trying to push this one point that uh, some of the main consequences of the Cold War and some of the incentives for keeping the global competition at such a high level of tension all the way up to the late 1980s came out of what was happening in the global south. So that's, that's the argument, in a way, that, that I, I push in, mm -hmm. in that book. Uh, this one is much more what you could call a survey history. I mean, it's an attempt to try to place the Cold War as a global conflict within the framework of other things that were happening in the 20th century. So it's a much broader book. Uh, it's also a book that is written uh, very clearly for uh, a um, general audience. So, I mean, I want people who do not have a particular academic interest in this to read a book mm -hmm. and, and, and benefit from it. 
And it's it's also important to me, I think, to 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 try to delineate in a way what the real significance of the Cold War was. I mean, the, one of the things that I'm always worried about with Cold War uh, history is that it has a tendency to become entirely all-consuming in terms of what people are looking at. So there has been traditionally, I think, an attempt uh, by historians, which I you know understand where it comes from, um, mm-hmm. to try to reduce global history, particularly the late 20th century, simply to the Cold War. That doesn't work for me. I mean, the Cold War is much more distinct than that along the lines of what we have already discussed. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't decide everything, but it influenced most things. And many of these things for the worse. And, um, you know, it was also itself influenced, as I just said, by uh, developments and issues that had a genesis elsewhere. In recent years, many historians and political scientists have been questioning the idea that the United States really won the Cold War. They point to the fact that American hegemony so quickly slipped away in the 2000s and that market democracies failed to take hold in many places around the world. Uh, what's your take on this, or as some might say, that the West lost the peace? <laughs> well, which I think is a better way of actually putting it. On this, I'm I'm sort of pretty straightforward. I think it's also my own interpretation. Of course, the United States won the Cold War. I mean, it won the Cold War in the sense that its Cold War enemy, the Soviet Union, went into terminal decline and then collapsed as a state. It's no longer around. So, in that sense, the United mm-hmm. States, having got through this incredible contest on a global scale, spending uh, an unbelievable amount of its resources and energy on fighting the Cold War and came out of it standing. That's a victory of, of sorts, right? Um, and so I, I think coming out of that in the 1990s and and certainly up to the up to the Iraq War, the United States didn't just have a global predominance in in, in material terms, military and and economic, uh, but it also had uh, the prestige of, of having come out of this great conflict, not only surviving, but seemingly thriving. You know, um, that was the much of the message of, in the 1990s. So, I think there are two reasons why that didn't hold. I mean, one is, and this is, I spent quite a bit of time in the book talking about this, is that the improvement in the U.S. economy in 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 relative terms in uh, the latter part of the 20th century, so from the 1980s onwards, was to some some extent based on excessive military spending. And it was also to some extent based on the ability that the United States had uh, to integrate others into a global economic system at which, uh, in which the United States was at the core, was at the center. So it benefited, in a way, from the first part of that process that we, we come to call globalization. But that was a very short-term effect. I think already by the end of the 1990s, or the beginning of the 2000s, these more general trends that come out of all of the latter part of the 20th century had caught up with this process. So that the what you could call, in a, in a way, looking at the time scope of, of, of this book, is a kind of normalization of international economic affairs starting to be more visible. That Relative to other powers, the U.S. predominance was not as pronounced as it would have been would have been earlier on. And so, I think there was a, 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 a opening for the United States in the 1980s and the 1990s, which in itself, by the way, strongly influenced the way the Cold War ended. You know, if yeah. if 
uh, do, to think of this in contrafactual terms, but very close actually to the historical storyline that I developed. If the uh, U.S. economy, even relative to its other capitalist competitors, had not been doing as well as it seemed to be doing in the 1980s and 1990s, it's quite possible that the kind of direction chosen by a number of other countries when the Soviet empire collapsed would have been very different, mm -hmm. right? Not so much towards a liberal form of capitalism with the disappointment that came open. But then secondly, I, I, I do also think, of course, that political choice, the, the disastrous decision to center so much on uh, on the Middle East, and particularly through the, through the uh, invasion and occupation of Iraq, participated in this sense of the United States having lost the ability to um, deal with the unipolar moment, in a way. So you're right in saying, I mean, that moment was very, very brief. It normally is in international affairs. I mean, if you think about the settlements of the other great conflicts, uh, you know, the idea is you get a 15-year period in which you can actually reorder the world. You know, that, that's quite a lengthy period of time. And I think the best way of saying it is that the United States did not make particularly good use of that opportunity, that opening, that was there. But that was not because it didn't really win the Cold War. It did win the Cold War, but it just didn't know, you know, which direction to move in afterwards. Do you have any final or closing thoughts about the legacy of the Cold War and our time? Sure. So there are two things that I'm preoccupied with in terms of this book and the contemporary international situation. And the first one is that we have to try to learn something from the Cold War period, and particularly the way it, it ended. And I know that a lot of historians are very skeptical to this idea that we can learn, you know, in a concrete way from history. Um, and I think, um, you know, some of that skepticism is warranted. It is uh, not easy to, to draw out of history something that is specific for the, for the current era, because things change, and they change on a very broad scale. But you need there are some important issues that come out of the end of the Cold War. The first one is that we were all extremely lucky that the Cold War didn't end in some kind of global military uh, strategic conflagration. I think when you look particularly at the latter stages of the Cold War, it's quite easy to see many ways in which that could have happened. And the reason why it didn't happen was that people on both sides were willing, when push came to show, to negotiate. That's, to me, the big lesson of the 1980s. With everything else that was going on, you know, the, the Cold War, after all, you know, after a period of significant Soviet weakness, was settled at the negotiating table. So that's the first one, uh, the sort of lesson that you, you know, where you don't negotiate with your friends, you negotiate with your enemies. And that's, 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 that's part of why the Cold War didn't end in, in global nuclear war. And then secondly, and this is particularly a lesson, I think, for the United States, how much of strength in a global sense, strategic sense, is connected to the domestic economy and, and how things actually work at home. And here I'm not just thinking about the economy in a, in a narrow sense in terms of production, but also thinking about it in terms of participation in the economy I mean, the, the ability for people who, after all, have to, to staff and man the system um, economically as well as militarily and in, in other respects, to actually have a, a reasonable belief that the system that they represent is serving them uh, and serving them well, right? Mm -hmm. So I think without that conviction, which was a significant uh, part of the Cold War competition, 
then things could also easily have ended up very differently. And that's also a lesson, I think, for today, that, you know, the if, if any country is going to do well internationally, it first and foremost needs to concentrate on giving the vast majority of the people within the country, within the power, um, something to believe in, um, that they actually benefit from this in some way or another. And um, that's also, I think, speaks directly to our own day and age. I do want to thank you very much for your time today and for your work. I mean, I personally love it. Many I'm of our readers so glad love to it. hear that. I'm honored and grateful. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We are looking to have more interview episodes in the coming year. For those of you who prefer the narrative to these interview episodes, rest content that we have a number of great episodes in the works about post-war Japan, the Civil War in China, and an episode looking at land warfare in the early Cold War. As always, if you have questions or want to donate to the podcast, our website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. As always, while there, don't forget to follow our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.